0: Hello
1: and welcome to SRB Podcast, where each week we cover topics relating to Eurasian politics, history, and society. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. The usual two guests today. First is Carl Qualls on the annexation of Crimea one year later then Josh Sanborn on World War I, The Collapse of the Russian Empire, and Decolonization. My first guest is Carl Qualls. Carl is a professor of history at Dickinson College and author of From Ruins to Reconstruction, Urban Identity, in Soviet Sevastopol After World War II. He is currently working on a book about children who fled the Spanish Civil War and were raised in the Soviet Union. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary since Russia's annexation of Crimea, what are your thoughts on the annexation, especially in light of Putin's recent re- revelations about the operation?
2: Well, in this, uh, this interview he's had for that forthcoming d- documentary, Homeward Bound, he suggests um, that the, the planning for this didn't happen after the referendum on March 16th, as he would previously said, but instead happened on the, the night of uh, February 22nd, 23rd. Um, I don't think too many people are going to be surprised by this, uh, quite frankly. Um, the fact that we had the little green men taking over uh you know parliament buildings, police stations airports uh seaports a full three weeks before the referendum even happened, uh, and you know with quite coordinated coordinated activity um you know weapon systems all that kind of stuff um I think everybody saw that that this was actually a well-coordinated activity um, and that it it was being planned somewhere other than on the peninsula. So I don't think it's a big surprise to anyone. I think what's most interesting is um, what he has said about it, how he has said it, and who his audience is. Um, He is continuing with the narrative that it was um, both a just action to seize and take uh, Ukraine, but it's also a necessary action, one to save the, uh, the ethnic Russians who dearly wanted Russia to come in and save them from these horrible Ukrainians that were going to wipe them out as a population. So he's playing again into this, this uh, national and nationalist fear that has been part of his, his, um, his rhetoric for, for the past year. So he's really just kind of reinforcing what he has been saying for almost a year now. He's just kind of moved up the timetable a little bit yeah
1: and, and it sounds like he's for for whatever reason he's coming clean um, and and that's an interesting question too in in setting the historical record straight, one may say to some extent in in his eyes.
2: right, right. I mean I, I think you know in some ways he's he's responding to some of the um the promises that he made a year ago that um, people on the ground have not seen completely, right. Remember, he promised this this much better standard of living. Um, was going to raise pensions and salaries to Russian levels, which are much higher than Ukrainian levels. Uh, and these are the things that the people on the ground were, were um, hoping for and wishing for as they went to the polls. Um, he has been meeting those obligations, it seems. But it's not a land of milk and honey yet. (laughs) And it seems that a number of people are starting to get a bit anxious. It's not decreasing his popularity much on the peninsula. But I think he's trying to head that off with this new, uh, this return to this national narrative, um, both for the population in Crimea, but also the population of Russia as a whole.
1: Yeah, I want to go into a little bit about uh, the the living conditions for, for Russians in particular and, and a little bit later in the interview. But let's kind of start with some a refresher on the, the history of the peninsula. Now, now, Putin has described Crimea with quite lofty language. In his speech that he gave in, in Sevastopol, he said that Crimea has invaluable civilizational and even sacral importance for Russia, like the Temple Mount in Jerusalem for the followers of Islam and Judaism. Uh, what is the, the – hist- let's start with the history of the peninsula and then I, I would like to then have you comment on its place in,
2: in Russian's historical imagination. OK. Um, so um, the history of the peninsula is, is very old as one might imagine. Um, being an, on the Black Sea, um, peoples from all over the region have populated at one point or another. Um, you know, going to Sevastopol, where the speech you, you cited was was made. Um, this is a site of a Greek city-state called Kersenesis 2,500 years ago. Um, and the the ruins of that city are still within the boundaries of modern-day Sevastopol, you know, a short short trip, bus trip from the, uh, the center, five-minute bus trip from the center. Um, so this has been populated by all numbers of peoples. Um, the... The, the landscape in this region in southern Russia and southern Ukraine really being kind of a wide open step has allowed for many peoples to, to um, cross back and forth across this region, settle for a while, be displaced. Probably the, the, um, the most significant um, populating uh, of the peninsula in the, the last two millennia were from the Crimean Tatars and eventually the, the Crimean Khanate. Um, who came in um, in the 13th century? Uh, they, they'd really settled, but had been interacting with other peoples in the in the region um, since, since the 10th century. Um, Russia really doesn't fix its eyes on the Crimean Peninsula until Peter the Great begins his his um, naval um, naval building. He wants his his uh, warm water port, and it seems like the Black Sea or the Sea of Azov is going to be that place. Um, and so he begins some incursions into the area, but it's not until the end of the 18th century um, with Catherine the Great that we first see the peninsula coming under Russian control. In 1783, she annexed, annexes it, also against the treaty obligation that she had, um, so history repeating itself a little bit, um, and began to build this up as a Russian uh, military territory and, um, Throughout the 18th and then into the 19th century, um, several wars, particularly with the Ottoman Turks, who are um, really the dominant power in the Black Sea, particularly the, the northern part of the Black Sea, um, and Russia is far, faring far, fairly well in those, uh, in those naval battles and land battles. Um, I think most people outside of Russia, certainly in, in England, would know it for the, um, for the Crimean War. Uh, in which the French and the British, uh, most importantly, are fighting over this, uh, this peninsula and control of the Black Sea and then the control further into Central Asia and into to, um, Southern Asia as well. So it's, it's got a long history of, of people kind of um, traveling through, settling, fighting for, but in the Russian imagination, it's even more – so if we go back to to the quote you mentioned, Sean, from this this speech several months ago in Sevastopol when he says it's an invaluable civilizational and even sacral importance, right? And, and comp- comparing it to the Temple Mount, uh, several people started calling me right after this and said, "What? What? how can he possibly make this statement? Um, but it actually makes sense in some ways um, because if we think of um, Sevastopol as being the place where in 988 um, Grand Prince Vladimir – Vladimir the Great was baptized, um, all of a sudden you see the religious importance of the city for Russians. Now, also for Ukrainians, because let's not forget that, that Vladimir was sitting in Kiev at the time. And so this is, again, it's in, in this, this um, Greek city-state of Chersonesus where this occurs. So it's the founding of Russian Orthodoxy, happens at that moment as Russian Orthodox see it, sees it. Um, and so it does have this kind of sacred, it's a sacred imaginary space for them. But it's also an ex- extremely important military um, location as well. As I mentioned, you know the, the Russian-Turk, Russia-Turkish wars, Crimean War, but then also um, the civil war, the Bolsheviks fighting the Whites and the Germans on the peninsula, and then of course World War II. As uh, I know, Faith Hillis was on a couple uh, weeks ago. Um, she mentions how important World War II is in the redefinition of. Um, Kind of national history in certain locations, um, and that's certainly uh, the case for the for the peninsula as well. Um, there is also um, a cultural uh, a cultural importance for the peninsula. Um, many educated Russians, um, of course, can quote Pushkin, and one of the poems they could quote is his uh, Fountain of Bakhchisarai, which he wrote in 1823. And this is a a very famous poem that's, that's set in the Khan's Palace in Bakhchisarai. Again, not a a, a a long distance from Sevastopol as well. Um, it's a place where people have taken uh, taken vacations from, you know, the czar's palaces to Soviet workers um, to the children right, who went to the Artek Pioneer Camp. All right. So Russians of of all kinds of of classes and all different eras have had some kind of a historical imagination embedded in Crimea. And therefore, when they when Putin talks about it as part of of Russia, it really resonates with many Russians.
1: Now, now, in your book, uh, From Ruins to Reconstruction, Urban Identity and Soviet Sevastopol After World War II, uh, you s- explore the post-war reconstruction of the city. Um, talk a bit about the post-war, uh, post-war Sevastopol and its importance and, and the Russianness of the city.
2: Right. So, um, during the war, um, Sevastopol, as the, the head of the, the Black Sea Fleet, was completely, completely flattened by the Germans. Um, only three percent of the city remained standing. And so um, city planners, architects, ideologues began to envision what this new city could be, uh, or should be, really not could be. Um, And so there are several competitions for how to reimagine that space. And all of them um, were imagining it as a historical space. The architects differed on what that historical space would be. Some wanted it as this, this grand Stalinist Soviet city. Um, others, and eventually the, the ones that won, um, wanted to write a local narrative into a Russian, not necessarily Soviet narrative. Um, and that's, in essence, what Sevastopol still is today. So they would take, for example, um, the the streets and squares that had been renamed after the Revolution and Civil War from, um, you know, uh, uh, Catherine the Great Street became Lenin Street, for example. Um, they began to rename some of those like Karl Marx Street. And begin naming them after local heroes, usually admirals, um, or naming them over uh, after local conditions. So um, you know we get um, what we call Great Sea Street, Bokshary Maskaya Ulitsa. Um, so they began to embed the city with street names, square names, monuments, um, regions being renamed. Right. So for the the Tartar uh, the Tatar suburb. Um, became known simply as the Green Hillock, trying to rewrite the, the Tatars out of the um, local imagination. Same happened with the Jews. There was a, a, a large community of Kairite Jews in Sevastopol, and their Kanasa or their prayer hall um, was turned into a sports complex. So there's both a writing in of Russian and even pre-revolutionary Russian history, but there's also a writing out of other ethnic identities. And so when we emerge from the rebuilding in the late 40s and, and early 50s when the center at least had been largely reconstructed, one walks through the urban space and you see, um, you see architectural styles that are Russian, although with a kind of a Black Sea in, inflection, right, with you know, different kinds of, of stone and materials being used, but you also see nothing but Russia and you see Russia's history, when everything is named after an admiral or a battle or something like that, you get a sense of the place being um, extremely important as a defender of the motherland and the motherland being Russia, not um, not the Soviet Union per se, um, certainly not Ukraine. And so as we transition then into a post-Soviet um, Ukraine, of which Crimea is a part, um you know I, I argued in the book that it would be generations before the local population in Sevastopol, at least would actually begin to think of them as themselves as Russian rather than or excuse me Ukrainian rather than Russian. Um, and that was even if it remained under Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, and it's because of the way the space was reimagined and the way the people interacted with it, right? those who who have been to you know Russia and Ukraine and other other places in the in the region you know that part of the wedding ceremony is usually going to monuments and laying flowers and taking pictures and whatnot. Those ceremonies went to all of these markers of local military, um, uh, military heritage. Right? The, all the guidebooks that were used by locals as, as well as tourists, because there weren't very many tourists because it was a closed city until 1996, they would tell you, okay, here's why you went, want to go to this monument. This is who this person is. This is why it's important. And none of those are Ukrainian. Right. Some of them are Soviet. Right. Most of them are Russian. The Shevchenko, you know, the the great Ukrainian bard, um, didn't get a statue in Sevastopol until about 10 years ago. And it's 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 regularly defaced with with graffiti. So the Russian this was it was already there to some extent because of the base and you have a lot of 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 uh, Russian sailors and, and veterans in the area. Um, but it's become even more so after World War II because the city's history was completely rewritten as one that was almost exclusively Russian.
1: Mm. So do you, would you say this, this re-narrativization of Sevastopol is part of the general kind of shift after World War – or during, beginning during World War II of a kind of Russian patriotism or a Russian nationalism?
2: Yes, and you know I think it goes back a little bit earlier than that I think David Brandenberger's work on the 1930s has shown you know how they were already reimagining some of the pre revolutionary Russian narrative as being important part of the Soviet narrative as well and so I think that this um, post-war period kind of picks up on that and then just does it in different ways right it's it's not just a, a, uh, a celebration of, of uh, you know a Pushkin anniversary, right? Now you're building it into physical space, um, which wasn't really happening much in the 1930s. Um, so it's it, it's the same idea, but using different media to to do that. Well, this kind of really falls into my ne- next
1: question, which is how um, many comment on how easy it, it was for for Putin to cry, to annex Crimea. I mean, it was basically a. Bloodless takeover, and I mean, I actually even saw an article today that that posed this question, and of course, it compared it to the stark contrast we see in Eastern Ukraine. Um, why was this uh, operation of annexation so successful? Is it connected to this idea of the kind of Russianness
2: of the peninsula? Uh, I th- I think so. That's that's certainly one of a couple elements. Um, the 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 amount of support or the amount of of, of fealty to Russia, I think, is much stronger in Crimea than it is in eastern Ukraine and certainly more though more so than in western Ukraine. Um, I don't think it's anywhere near what. Moscow has said, right? I mean, in the, the the referendum a year ago was something like 97%, and we have to remember that that was done under the point of a gun, or literally there were guys with guns standing outside of all the polling stations. Uh, most of the Tatars and the uh, many of the Ukrainians were fearful of going to vote, so that number is nowhere near the real number. I think it's certainly a majority on the peninsula, and in a place like Sevastopol, it's a, it's a, it's a very large majority of people. That saw themselves more pro-Russian than than pro-Ukrainian, um, but I think that's really just one of many reasons why it differed than why it's different than than Eastern Ukraine uh, today or over the last couple months. Um, first, we have to remember that we have a tremendous number of Russian troops on the ground in Crimea before anything begins to happen in Euromaidan. Um, we have numerous bases, naval, um, uh, land bases, marine bases. Uh, around the peninsula. So we already have thousands of Russian troops there who can simply take off insignia and kind of blend in with these so-called self-defense forces and begin to coordinate that activity. Um, so it's it's less chaotic in its initial stages. Um, two, Kiev was in complete disarray as this is, is starting, you know, around the 27th of February last year. Um, we begin to see the first action of the little green men. Um, the government in Kiev is in complete disarray. We don't have a government per se yet. We have a couple people standing in acting as the government, um, and so to, to marshal forces outside of the peninsula to help the peninsula would have been quite difficult, I think. Um, and third, Kiev was showing tremendous amount of restraint um, by not allowing the troops, their troops, Ukrainian troops uh, on the ground in Crimea to fight back. Right? No, no shots being fired. Um, This is probably with a great deal of pressure by Western countries, but also I think it was probably at that time seemed like a a smart move because if they did begin shooting on people who were not um, Russian troops, although I believe that the vast majority of them were, um, then Russia would have – a, a type of a justification where they could come in and say, see, we told you these Ukrainians are out to kill Russians. We now then are going to move in and protect them. So I think there was a lot of, a lot of reasons why it was relatively bloodless. Um, and, you know, when we move to eastern Ukraine, now the Kievan government is put together. There's more Western backing uh, for them. They've already seen what Putin has done. They've seen how it happens um, and so it – and, and the, the, the mix of people in eastern Ukraine is quite different from, from Crimea as well. And so I think that's why it's turned into this, this really um, nasty kind of street-to-street, in some cases, fight that fortunately we did not see in Crimea.
1: So let's go back to – you already mentioned it a little bit, but let's kind of go into it deeper, uh, how the Crimea's Russian population has fared since, since the annexation.
2: Yeah, well, technically everybody in Crimea is Russian now. Um, I think this is one of the 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 really difficult parts of thinking about the Russian population of of Crimea. Is well, do, what do we mean by by Russian? Um, is it just their loyalties? Is it you know some kind of ethnic identity, linguistic identity? Um, so I think what I'll I'll try to do is talk about the population in general, except for some minority populations, which maybe I'll 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 break out separately. So. Um, The soon after the annexation occurred last March, um, people were forced to either take Russian citizenship or to declare themselves not to be Russian citizens, Uh, and therefore they would have to apply for residency permits. Residency permits were limited to 5,000 per year. So that means that the vast majority of people who chose not to become Russian citizens but still reside within the boundaries of the Crimean Peninsula, are foreign aliens. Which also means there, there are a limited number of, of um, uh, jobs that can be given out to, to um, non-citizens in Crimea. So this also meant that you were probably losing your job at the same time. So this means that for those who chose not to become Russian citizens, that their life became incredibly perilous. Um, Many of them fled. Uh, We have no idea the real numbers, but it's in the tens of thousands of people who fled uh, Crimea. Uh, Many lost their jobs and therefore their homes. Um, And so it became quite a a difficult life for them. For those who chose to become Russian or were somehow pressured into becoming Russian and taking uh, a Russian passport, um, they did see some benefits. Um, Pensioners saw their pensions go up, for example. Um, Minimum wages were increased. Um, so there were some positives in that sense. I think probably the, the starkest change, though, is in the legal system. Um, within the first couple of months after the annexation, both the um, police system and the judiciary system were um, taken over by officials coming from Russia proper. So the Crimean, the local Crimean officials and police uh, superintendents and whatnot were being replaced by those coming from various regions within Russia, the Russian Federation. And Russia would say that this is because now the peninsula is Russian and we need to impose Russian law, and these people know Russian law. But it's also a way to push out those people who may not agree with the annexation in the first place. So in essence, they're they're changing the law and changing the people who are enforcing the law, and a lot of that enforcement has been um, exceedingly arbitrary and what most liberal democracies would see as um, gross violations of human rights. Uh, your, your ability to, to gather, to speak, um, to speak out. There is a law against questioning the ter- territorial integrity of Russia, which means if you say, well, Crimea is Ukrainian, you can be arrested. There was a um, three people. I think it was three people just about three or four days ago, who were arrested simply for flying the Ukrainian flag. Um, a week before that, roughly, um, there was another gentleman who was arrested for participating in one of the rallies last February. All right. So um, anyone who who is remotely activist um, understands that they have a have a target um, a target on them. Then, if we also look to things like uh, media. Um, in essence, the 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 annexation has led to um, all the things we currently see going on in the Russian Federation happening in Crimea as well. So this means uh, limitation on media. So the um, all the internet providers are being serviced through Rostelecom. So this is you know Moscow controlled company basically. Um, Landlines are still Ukrainian to some extent, but all mobile lines are Russian. Um, newspapers and televisions, almost all of them. Radio stations, almost all of them, have been taken over or closed down. So you don't have access to to alternate media, um, and so this, as it's happened in Russia, allows for a single narrative to to come from Moscow to help to try to um, solidify this notion of Crimea being, having been, and always shall be part of Russian territory. But let but, I me mean, just interrupt you for a second. The,
1: the infrastructure, though, is still in Ukrainian hands, right? The gas, Absolutely. water, and electricity.
2: Right. So you have um, something like 60% of the gas uh, for the peninsula comes from Ukraine, and between 80 and 100% of the water and electricity comes from Ukraine. And I've seen a lot of people speculating on why Kiev simply doesn't shut it off, right? Because if, if Kiev simply said, oh, great, you're, you're Russian territory now, you won't get any services from us, that is a tremendous – well, it would just destroy the the local economy, but be a, a, a tremendous uh, burden on the local population as well. And I think some of the reasons this hasn't happened is one, once Kiev you know shuts those off, it's recogni- recon- recognition de facto that this is now Russian territory, not Ukrainian. They don't want to give that up yet. Um, two, they're still saying, well, look, you know, we're the humanitarians here, right? We are still providing this, even though we're not getting paid for it in most cases. We're still providing it because it's it's the right thing to do. Um, and, of course, then if they did do that, the, the threat of further punishment from Russia or Russia continuing to push uh, through Mariupol and create that land bridge down to, to um, Crimea, because there's no way to get these services there. Right? You would have to bring um, everything in by tanker right now um, because this, you know, the land bridge that they're talking about uh, near Kirch is at least three years away. Um, and the plans for it seem to change um, you know, <laughs> within, within every you know, three, three or four months. It seems that there's another plan for it. So the peninsula is really at Ukraine's mercy, but so far Ukraine has, has been doing the, the humanitarian thing and, and keeping the, uh, all the services flowing.
1: Now let, let's talk a bit about the Crimean Tartars. Um, according to the last Ukrainian census from 2001, I think it was, they make up about 12% of the population, or they did before annexation. Um, how, how have uh, the, the Tartars fared uh, since the annexation?
2: Well, they clearly, I think, have been um, the, the population that has been most uh, targeted by this takeover. Um, so, for example, immediately after um, Euromaidan, you know, within, within weeks, even days of that, we began to see... Um, Tatar homes being marked in precisely the same way they were in 1944 um, during and the deportation for-, for the deportation. Right. Exactly. So in 44, um, the Tatars were deported en masse from the Crimean Peninsula for alleged collaboration with the Nazis. Sent uh, far to the east, you know, about a quarter of them died uh, in transit and were not let. Well, some were let let back to the peninsula in the 1950s, but most of them not until after 1991. So they have they have clearly been marked very. Um, very early on, still as an enemy nation, right? And this is one of the things that the Soviets did is once they start started seeing s- some populations as kind of being primordial enemies, um, they could be deported en masse, right? Because they're unchangeable. That narrative st- still seems to be there on the ground for some people because we see their houses being marked. We see their leaders who have left Crimea to to have a meeting or go visit someone and whatnot, and their leaders are not being let back onto the peninsula. Um, many Tatars have been harassed, imprisoned, beaten up. Um, they have disappeared. We're assuming they're dead. Um, so this has been a, a pretty stark um, period uh, year for for the Crimean Tatars. Um, we have no idea. But, you know, the, some of the numbers I've seen is between ten and twenty thousand of them have probably left the peninsula for
1: good. And that's out of a population that I think was uh, two, 250,000 right. or something like this.
2: Right. Yeah. So we're, we're looking somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the population, perhaps. And this is already a population that has a wide diaspora because since, since Russia uh, took over in the 18th century, there have been numerous uh, laws and you know, purges, for lack of a better word, that's not probably not the best word to use at this point, um, of, of Tatars. And so they have fled either from fear or actively being pushed out of the territory. And so they're spread all throughout the, the Black Sea littoral. And so their, their numbers are much, much larger than, than in their homelands in, in Crimea. But now even more of them, and especially their leaders in the Mielis are, are being, um, thrust out and they're, they're um, you know, their parliament isn't able to to function properly. Their news outlets are not able to function. Um, All religious institutions have to um, have to reapply to the Russian Federation now. um, And that has not gone very swiftly. Uh, Have have there been closings of mosques that you're aware aware of? um, Well, closing. Um, There have been there are several that have not been reissued permits. Right. So it's not as if they're closed permanently, but they haven't been ge- ge- been given Russian authorization. Um but there's also been t- tremendous number of mosques that have seen um you know graffitied uh graffitied walls. So there's there's both the the public response, and you know again, this is probably a, a small minority who's doing this, obviously, but there's been a public response, but then there's also been the the political and official response as well, neither of which is, is um terribly um um, they're 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 certainly not trying to make the the Tatars seem welcome in their homeland, and we have to remember that Tatars you know existed there for five centuries before the Russians came, right? So if anyone has a claim to this being their land, uh, it would be the Tatars, I think.
1: And finally, um, it it seems that uh, Crimea has become a non-issue. Though I I have to say that this morning I saw a headline that David Cameron has uh, canceled. His uh, appearing at the 70th anniversary for the end of World War II, uh, partially over Crimea, but for the most part, it seems that uh, it, Crimea really doesn't really factor in in the West's current dealings with Russia. I mean, it's not even mentioned in the negotiations about uh, with around yeah around Minsk or anything like this. Um, do you think that the West has basically recognized Russia's de facto annexation, and what does that mean?
2: Um, yes, I think <laughs> the short answer is yes. They, I think the reason it wasn't in the Minsk II agreements is because as soon as it was brought up, it would be a non-starter for, for both sides. Whatever the language was they came up with, either Kiev or Moscow would reject it. And so Orlando and Mirko probably left it off the, the agenda specifically, uh, hoping to get to ceasefire and then bring this up at some other point. Um, Poroshenko has made it quite clear that he still sees this as Ukrainian territory. The UN has, has come out, much to Russia's uh, disappointment, has come out and, and recognized Crimea as Ukrainian territory, but nobody's doing anything about it. And one, I think, is because um, loss of life is not happening in the way it is in eastern Ukraine, so it's a, it's a matter of priority. But it's also, I think, everybody who is, <laughs> who is rational right now does not see a way that Putin is going to give this up. He simply invested too much of his political capital, All right. And then, and with this this documentary come out coming out even more so, saying that this is our territory it is historically our territory. It always has been. We cannot turn it over, or you know, these re- Ukrainian nationalists will slaughter the Russians, et cetera, et cetera. There's for me, I don't see any way that he can step away from that. It it has to be some kind of a post Putin regime. Where, where we could come up with some kind of negotiated um, uh, settlement for what happens in, in Crimea. Um, we haven't even started negotiation, and, and maybe it's, it's Kiev, the, the repayment for all the, the Ukrainian assets that have been seized. I mean, tremendous number of, of factories, ports, the fleet – as well as the, the land and the territory, that if Russia says, right, this is ours, and, and the international community finally agrees to that, you know, there's billions upon billions, if not trillions of dollars that Moscow would have to pay to Kiev, right? But Kiev is not going to start requesting that right now, because it again, it recognizes that as as Russian territory. So I think it is the forgotten part of the Russian attack on Ukraine. Um, some because of um, Eastern Ukraine simply being much more violent and and um, more time sensitive, um, but also a recognition that that Putin's not going to take his hands off in 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 the near future or even the distant future, for to be quite frank.
1: That was Carl Qualls, professor of history at Dickinson College and author of From Ruins to Reconstruction: Urban Identity in Soviet Sevastopol after World War II. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB podcast. I'll be back after a musical break.
0: Когда-то мне лагала, Что сердце девичье свое давало другому отдало, Что сердце девичье свое давало другому
1: My next guest is Josh Sanborn. Josh is a professor of history at Lafayette College and author of Imperial Apocalypse, The Great War and the Destruction of the Russian Empire. The Eastern Front, and in particular the Russian experience in World War I, has gotten far less scholarly attention than the Western Front. Why do you think that's so?
3: Yeah, so I think that the first reason just has to do with the overwhelming weight of historical studies in general on Western Europe as compared to Eastern Europe. Uh, but um, you know, the the second reason actually has to do with the nature of the war itself. It um, uh, at the time um, certainly among Western European powers, uh, Britain, France, Germany in particular, um, the war was seen as a as a sort of a titanic imperial clash between those states, and so. They they were predisposed to see the coming conflict in that way, and when the conflict came, they looked at it that way. So France and, and Britain both focused quite directly upon Germany, um, and uh, and as a result, um, that I think has taken the, the, the lion's share of the uh, historiographical um, uh, attention um, uh, onto the Eastern Front, to the Western Front, as opposed to the Eastern Front.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you also think that it has something to do with the fact that the way the war is remembered? in or the lack of memory in Russia as opposed to the west i mean you have far less kind of uh, memorials you have uh, you don't have the same kind of tradition of memory
3: yeah i mean i think that's, that's also the, it's especially the case if we start to ask why is it that there hasn't been um a robust historiographical tradition within Eastern Europe, among Eastern European historians, and among um, uh, uh, and within those nations themselves. Uh, so certainly, the Bolsheviks were far more interested in commemorating the revolution and the civil war than they were any events uh, in World War I. But it's also the, the case for uh, for many other Eastern European countries. If you, again, if you take you know Poland as an example, um, you know their, uh, the experience of the war is kind of an ambiguous one for them uh, and hard to place within nationalist narratives or, uh, or, for that matter, within sort of the, the communist narratives uh, in the post-World War II period. So um, for a number of reasons, uh, the, the historiography on the Eastern Front has been, has been slow to develop.
1: You try to write a different narrative about the war, that it's not a war of, like, great powers so much, but you say that the war was, the Great War was a war of European decolonization. Uh, what do you mean by that, and how does decolonization help us understand the war's impact differently?
3: Yeah, so I mean the, uh, you know, the, the tradition that I'm pushing against is exactly that tradition of looking at the war solely as a competition between, between the, the major imperial powers and, and between the ones that in essence survived the war on the Western Front. Um, you know, if we, uh, uh, if, if we look at you know, um, uh, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, we see um, Obviously, uh, cases in which the war proved uh, devastating for those imper- imperial polities and brought an end to those empires. And one of the ways that we describe that more broadly in the 20th century is as um, a process of, of decolonization. Um, and so what I want to do by focusing on, on Eastern Europe and on Eastern Europe, on the Eastern Front, as a way of thinking through the problems of of the war, um, is to focus on the end of empire itself as a process that goes uh, throughout the entire war. In other words, one way to look at this might be: Okay, well, these are losing states uh, within the war, uh, and so as a result, um, it's it's at the end of the war that decolonization happens, as sort of by 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 treaty uh, <laughs> almost. Um, but that's not the way decolonization has happened in in most of the world, and and it isn't. Um, I argue the way that it happens in Eastern Europe either. The decolonization is really a process rather than an event, uh, and it's a process that's marked by by quite similar things, by a challenge to the notion of empire, um, but most um, significantly by um, by state failure and then by, by social disaster. Um, and so I spend most of the book trying to describe how it is that the processes of the war help bring about a failure of the state and um, and uh, the, the social disaster that, um, uh, that, that, uh, that attends it starting as early as 1914, but really um, culminating in, in the Russian Civil War in many ways.
1: Yeah, it, it really struck me in the book that the level of kind of, I mean, of course, with a war, you get high levels of violence, but you really focus on the violence against uh, civilian populations and the movements of those populations and how it basically allowed for the, facilitated the collapse of, of state institutions and. Of the Russian Empire. Uh, Talk a bit about first about how the impact of the Russian occupation, and then and then also the retreat of the army from Galicia and Poland and how that brought the empire on the verge of collapse.
3: Yeah, so one of the things I focus on uh, in the early chapters of the book um, are the processes that are beginning to undo the empire even before the massive military defeat in 1915. So the first chapter of the book, uh, the first core chapter of the book, really um, deals with um, the way that state institutions are suffering already uh, in 1914, largely as the result of the imposition of martial law. Um, uh, thinking through what actually happens when um, uh, the Imperial bureaucracies that had governed policing and uh, economic regulations and all those sorts of things uh, in the borderlands um, are now um, supplanted by a, a very thinly staffed and largely incompetent military bureaucracy um, and so that's one of the things I trace in that uh, uh, in the first chapter um, largely in res- in in the realm of, of ethnopolitics and violence but also in in the functioning of the local economy and some of the reasons for the collapse of the borderland economy and, uh, and the attendant rapid inflation that occurs. And so then by the time we get to 1915, um, uh, this is, you know, it, it's, it's it's a situation in which we already have a weakened imperial state, and the um, uh, the the successful uh, German uh, offensive, Garli Tsaroff, uh, and then more broadly uh, across the entire front in the summer of 1915, that drives Russian forces um, uh, uh, backwards and forces them to retreat uh, uh, out of uh, all of Poland, for instance. Um, uh, this sort of completes that process of of, of state uh, of state disintegration, and 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 also begins to carry many of these kind of social pathologies back into the center of the empire.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that on the one hand, you, you tell a story of destruction and the destruction of bonds that holds society together, but you also point to the, the creation of new forms of bonds in, in Russian society in the empire. Uh, talk about how the war transformed Russian society in those ways.
3: Yeah, and this, in many respects, is, uh, one of the most interesting things for me was, was, um, was trying to, um, uh, trying to understand and to trace exactly that kind of, uh, of social reconstruction. I really see it, um, it's happening as early, again, as, as in 1914. I mean, one of the most interesting things you know, that, that I found was uh, that in these territories, these Polish territories, which are in essence abandoned by the imperial bureaucracy and not attended to by the military, um, new forms of self-government begin to emerge that are unsurprisingly dominated by um, by Polish nationalists, especially the NDEK party. Um, and so you start to see new forms of, of political organization as early as 1914. But you see it in the midst of the retreat in 1915, as well. This is something that Peter Gatrell has has um, uh, talked about already in his book on refugees, the way that the refugee experience helped generate new forms of social organization. Um, and then by the time we get to 1916, um, it's, uh, I, I describe it as, as, as a race of, a, of an attempt to, re, uh, to really create a new kind of, of imperial political and social community as the old one is, uh, is rapidly crumbling under, under invasion and violence violence uh, the upshot obviously is that um, is that the, the forces of destruction went out that, that we don't get the creation of this um of this uh, sort of uh, technocratic state that I'm, I'm describing in the middle chapters, um, uh, uh, or at least not in the same form by the time the, the Bolsheviks uh, emerged victorious at the end of 1970.
1: And, and talk a bit about the, you, you point to an emergence of, or at least the, the increasing involvement of progressive society, doctors and nurses and, and other, and politicians in, in the war effort and how that also contributes to this transformation.
3: Yeah, so I mean, uh again, one of the things I was trying to do uh really uh really throughout the book was to was to give a sense of 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 who's fighting this war in a certain way. Um uh, you know, there's been the 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 historical historiographical tradition um in many respects up to this point has focused um a great deal on events in in Petrograd um and uh perhaps an excessive attention to people like Rasputin. And uh you know, in my conviction, certainly by the time we get to 1916, and, and he begins to take center stage in some of the, uh, the sort of the traditional books on this era, is that the Tsarist government has become less and less important, actually, uh, that the people who are actually carrying out the war effort uh, are in the military and also in um, uh, in the public organizations, uh, um, especially those associated with uh, with Zim but, um but not only. And um, the activity that that these people are are undertaking in 1915 and and in 1916 is really quite tremendous, and uh, they... They, one of the things I describe in the book, for instance, um, uh, to sort of um, move slightly away from sort of the high politics of Petrograd has to do with things like inoculation campaigns of, um, you know, trying to make sure that um, in in an effort to stem epidemic disease that they um, are able to inoculate um, uh, as many of the soldiers as they can or the development of new technologies, let's say gas mask technologies. Um, There's a lot of attention to a sort of a scientific uh, and progressive way of thinking about, about fighting. The war, uh, both on the battlefront and, and on the home front. Now, this results in, in a new um, sort of oppositionist center for, uh, uh, in terms of high politics, uh, but it also, um, you know, I think helps to develop this um, uh, rather more intrusive state. Uh, you know, this is something, again, that other historians have, have talked about. You know, Peter Holquist um, discussed um, at, at some length in, in, in his work as well. Um, but um, we do have, I think, really a, um, a really marked emergence of this, uh, of this technocratic progressive uh, movement um, um, that, uh, that eventually is, is going to um, uh, take power, if only briefly, uh, uh, in the period of the provisional government.
1: I think you're providing a different narrative to the revolution than we're used to. Um, and, and and it's interesting. I found it interesting that you open your chapter on the revolution with a discussion of violence and crime on the one hand, and then a rebellion in Central Asia in in 1916 on the other. How did these two events define the revolution in 1917
3: that breaks out in 1917? Yeah, it, it's definitely attempt to um, to. Yeah, to look at the revolution from a different angle, in the same way that I was trying to look at World War One from a different angle from the Western historiography, um, I think using the same frame of, of decolonization um, allows for a different angle on the historiography of the of the Russian Revolution as well. Um, and so, if we look at questions like um, like state collapse and like uh, the emergence of widespread violence uh, and the impact that that both of those have upon society. If we look at those as revolutionary processes, I think we begin to see uh, maybe even a different periodization of, of what we take the revolution to be. Certainly one of the things that I'm trying to argue is that um, uh, that civil war as a concept isn't something that we just um, sort of mark after um, the seizure of power by the Bolsheviks. That that civil war in many respects is uh, is, is underway prior to that. Uh, and Central Asia is the, uh, the, the the massive revolt of 1916, is I think um, a per- example of that. The way that the decolonizing pressures of the war and uh, uh, and the violence and the state collapse that attends it um, uh, really does create a revolutionary situation. Uh, and one that's going to be durable actually throughout the the, the rest of the of the civil war itself. Uh, and in terms of starting that chapter uh, with with crime in and uh, in, in near frontline areas, uh, that chapter begins. Uh, the, the sort of archival studies I was doing of this were uh, in in Kiev and in Riga, um, sort of looking at local records to see what's happening with local crime uh, in areas um, uh, near the front. Um, it's uh, you know you begin to see this uptick of violence um, even prior to to February and so what does you know what does that mean for our understanding of the relationship between revolution and violence or, uh, or between um, you know the revolution and, and Civil War and, um, and and my argument is that in some respects um, yeah it uh, it predates them and so one of the things I then try to do is, is to trace the impact of the summer 1916 rebellion through the more recognizable moments of, of the revolution, in particular the, the big November 1916 Duma session, that's marked by most famously by Milyakov's stupidity or treason speech, but is also characterized by a lot of concern about the nature of empire that, and of atrocity that gets um, that brings the whole Central Asian dimension uh, to the forefront of Russian politics.
1: Mm-hmm. And you also talk a bit about also the the, the multi-ethnic question in russia at the time i me mean, because a lot of like for example your descriptions of of the eastern front there's a lot of ethnic violence particularly against jews others have talked about this of course but you know in in many respects if you categorize the the war but also the collapse of the empire and the revolution as a, a process of decolonization you also have the presence of the ethnic question can you comment on that as well
3: Oh, absolutely! You know, and and this has you know, and and these have been questions obviously that, that other historians have have thought about and, and written about, and um, uh, and not only on the Eastern Front. You know, uh, there there's uh, you know the question of of nationalization of ethnic violence um, is is an important one in, in many different regions of uh, of the war. Um, but it's certainly uh, one if if you're looking at the Eastern European borderlands, um, it's it's hard to miss the uh, the uh, campaigns. uh, on the Russian side of the border, the campaigns against ethnic Germans and especially against Jews. And then the real ethnic question about what to do with Poland, um, which on the one hand, they realize they have to have ethnic Polish support um, in order to, uh, to prosecute a successful war effort, and yet on the other hand, um, they're fully aware of, of the historic uh, tensions between, uh, between Russians and Poles in the area. And so ethnopolitics becomes um, uh, 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 obviously a central issue of the war for, for the Russian Empire. Um, as a result, and again from its very early days, and we do have this nationalizing moment which several historians have talked about as being a feature of, 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 uh, of 1914. And this then evolves over the course of the war, and um, by the time we get to 1916, and especially into 1917, um, we're starting to, to, to see the development of larger and larger movements um, uh, centered around ethno-political ideals. Um, now, those don't immediately emerge in early 1917 as um, as full-fledged independence movements. Indeed, one of the um, surprising things for me, again writing this, uh, um, was the was the strength of uh, not really the imperial. Idea among non Russians, but of uh, what gets um, uh, framed as a federal idea really by many uh, over the course of 1917, that the future of the empire might be um, uh, a federal state of, of, of equal nationalities. Um, and that strength of federalism, of the discourse of federalism over 1917, I think is an important and interesting moment of, of the revolutionary um, uh, year there.
1: And finally, um... What lessons can we draw from your study and about how the war defined the twentieth century and in, and in, and the future of the Soviet Union in particular? and is there any kind of vestiges of this history that we can point to today?
3: Oh, I think there, there certainly is. Uh, you know, the, um, I, I think in general for the 20th century, if we think about um, the place of World War I in the 20th century, I think adding this angle of, of decolonization um, uh, does interesting things to the trajectory. <laughs> uh, if we think of decolonization only as something that happens after um, uh, after World War II, uh, in uh, in the global South, um, let's say, um, then decolonization um, um, uh, looks looks uh, uh, in a certain sense is more um, uh, ethnicized and nationalized, and, and one of the things that, that I'm trying to point to throughout the book is the importance of the state in all of this, um, and so. You know, if we think of Europe decolonizing um, uh, in this period during and, and after World War One, um, then I think we can see decolonization as as a shift in state practices and uh, and in the, the nature of, of of violence in many respects across the 20th century, uh, uh, which is a more um, which is a different story than than, uh, than the one we have right now. And in terms of what uh, what we see today, I mean, most obviously in the war in Ukraine. Um, uh, is that um, uh, we have um, a different sort, I think, of post-colonial situation. Uh, there have been scholars who have talked about post-1991 Eastern Europe as being a post-colonial space, um, uh, but these, uh, you know, these vestiges of 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 of, of, of the. Of post-colonialism or the, the, the manifestations of post-colonialism, I think, um, um, are evident today, and they do have um, deeper roots than, than just in, in 1991. It's interesting, for instance, if you're studying 1917, 1918, and what's going on in Ukraine, which is, is something that I touch on in, in the book, um, uh, you know, some of these same issues regarding, you know, how, how are you going to constitute, um, uh, uh, let's say, a Ukrainian polity and, and who gets to speak for it and how important are our voices and movements in the East for helping to define that, um, you know, these are all issues that are, um, uh, that are certainly present within, uh, within the Ukrainian war today.
1: That was Josh Sanborn, professor of history at Lafayette College and author of Imperial Apocalypse, The Great War and the Destruction of the Russian Empire. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and follow me on Twitter, at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next week, bye.
0: Моя Марусечка, моя ты куколка, моя Марусечка, моя ты душенька, моя Марусечка, Пожить так хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, любовь моей женой.